0: Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. You know, what's up with this weather? Anybody noticing it's like hot, cold, cloudy, sunny? What's it going to be later on today? We don't know. My wife and I had to turn on the air conditioner for crying out loud last night. It was so hot in our house. First time this year. How's everybody doing? Good? All right. Good. Are you ready for a Bible study? Alright, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are in the book of 1 Peter and I'm excited about this study today. This is a special one. And so I want us to get together, get ready for a good study in God's Word. One that will really surprise us, quite frankly. This sermon today, this message in 1 Peter 3, 8-17, to is a message that is somewhat... Perhaps going to be unexpected for some of you. You know, oftentimes we find that unexpected things turn out for good, don't they? Sometimes when we least expect it, something that on the outset, on first glance, might look painful or might look frustrating or might be a difficult circumstance, at first glance... When we see how God uses it throughout our lives, it becomes a blessing. How many of you, for instance, have been fired from a job only to find a greater and much better job a few weeks or months later? I'm sure some of us have had that happen. How many of you have even experienced something as as terrible as a death in the family and yet recognized? That despite that horrible moment in your family's life, God blessed your family by bringing people together again and by reconciling past hurts and past difficulties. Maybe there were family problems and the death of a family member brought the family together and that a greater good was ultimately accomplished. You see, there's so many things in life where at first glance, it looks like this is not something we want to do. This is not a path that I want to take, Lord. I'm not pleased with the direction of my life, Lord. And yet, He, in, the, the Lord uses suffering, trouble, and trials to bring us through to a new road, a new path in life, in which we say, that's what you were doing all along. Friends, today, Peter is going to make a very pointed statement. He's going to say that the good life the life that you want and I want, the life that is satisfying, the life that is, that is worth living, the life that you all want to have, the good life, includes suffering. In fact, Peter's going to go on to say that suffering, the title of my message today, suffering is very often, in fact, the unexpected key to a satisfying life. Now at first glance, at first thought, you think, are you crazy? Suffering unto a good life? How do these two go together? Peter is going to help us understand this today. The title again, suffering, is often the unexpected key to a satisfying life. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 8, and we're going to see how Peter uses suffering so that we might experience a good life. Chapter three, verse eight. Peter says this. He says, finally, he's summing up, if you will, where he's been. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is He who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but instead sanctify the Lord God, In your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good. Than for doing evil. Let's take a look at verse eight closely. Peter says this in verse eight. He says, "Finally, in summation, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous." Now, for those of you that have been here the last number of weeks, we've, we've the last couple months we've been going through the Epistle of 1 Peter. It's a letter written to gentile primarily gentile believers that is non-Jewish Christians in Asia Minor near Rome but a little bit to the to the east and Peter is writing to a group who are new believers they were previously under pagan Roman culture they were previously inclined to worship the pagan Roman gods And he's giving them a whole new lifestyle now. Peter is declaring to them, this is what your new life in Christ looks like. And beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter begins to show them how radical this new lifestyle is. He says, this lifestyle includes being submissive to your master's slaves. Even the masters that treat you ill, that treat you evilly. This lifestyle includes obeying and being submissive to the government," he goes on to say. This lifestyle includes being submissive in your marriage relationship, wives to husbands, and husbands to wives showing respect and love and care and understanding to their wife. Now these kinds of principles that Peter is espousing from chapter 2:11 on into three verse seven is totally foreign to the Roman culture. It's not the kind of life that they would have lived in their old ways under Rome. But Peter's saying you're called to a new lifestyle as believers in Jesus Christ. And he says, finally, let me sum it up for you. I want you to be of one mind. I want you to have compassion for one another. I want you to love as brothers. Be tender-hearted and be courteous. Now take note of each of these descriptions listed in verse 8. Each of these adjectives are largely unique to the New Testament. In fact, only one of them is used a second time in the New Testament. So Peter's using very unique words here. And he uses these words to describe what our Christian conduct should look like. Notice where he's going to focus. He's not so much going to focus on the outward actions as much as he is on the inward person. The inward person in Christ. Because he knows that once these attitudes, once these qualities are developed in the inward man, they will naturally flow out in actions in the outward man. He says this, be of one mind. Paul talked a lot about this in our study in Philippians chapter 2. That is to say, your attitude and actions should contribute to the harmony in your local fellowship. You should be con- content on building up unity in the church, in your family, in your marriage, in your workplace. We asked uh, a, number, a number of months ago when we were studying Philippians chapter 2, I talked about, do you contribute to unity or do you break down unity? Be it your family, your workplace, your church. You have two options. You can contribute to the unity of the body or you can work to destroy the unity of the body. Consider how you might build up the unity of the church to be of one mind. Secondly, Peter says, having compassion. This is the Greek word, sympathes, which means with feeling. Having feeling towards someone else. A better translation would be sympathy. Having sympathy toward one another. Third, love as brothers. Don't view each other as strangers or mere acquaintances. Instead, view each other as family. You know, our, our chairman of our board, Glenn Eichler, he always speaks of this church as his family. In our elder meetings and in front when he prays, he says, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is true. That is true according to Scripture. The people in this building here today, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are family. Peter says, I want you to love each other as you would love your own family. And these last two adjectives, tender-hearted and courteous, or some of you might have uh, humility. These last two adjectives, the Romans, it's interesting because in Roman literature, in the pagan philosophies of that day, these last two virtues, according to Peter, were actually understood as two vices according to the Romans. Tender-hearted and courteous. To Roman culture, these were vices. These were signs of weakness. These were indications that you, in fact, were not a very strong person. Not a very formidable person. Not a person of honor and courage. Peter says, no, I want you to take these former Roman vices and I want you to recognize them for what they truly are. They are virtues. Be tender-hearted. This is to say a love found deep in the soul. And be courteous, be kind. Well, Peter here has given us five positive affirmations of our new conduct in Christ. Now he's going to go on to describe some of the negatives, some of the things that we are to avoid in our new conduct in Christ. Take a look at verse 9. He says this, "...not returning evil for evil... Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, return blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, friends, this, this text should really remind us of what where we've been in, in First Peter. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Peter has been repeating this mantra again and again and again. And he's doing it for emphasis. He knows that this is not the natural way to act. He knows that when you are ridiculed by someone, when you are pained by someone, when someone else causes you suffering, it is your natural human tendency to bite back. To fight back. To take them down as they've taken you down. Peter says again and again and again throughout this letter, Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. You know, Simon Peter learned this lesson quite well, I imagine, over his life. Do you remember in John 18 who it was during Jesus' time of betrayal who took out a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest? It was Peter. The same man who wrote these words that we read today in verse 9 is the same man who, 30 years ago, from this letter, sliced off the ear of the servant of the high priest because they were arresting Jesus. 30 years ago, he was a man who returned evil for evil, who returned reviling for reviling how far he had come in his walk with the Lord. He says, no longer am I going to fight back when we suffer unjustly. Certainly, Jesus was unjustly arrested. And Peter took out a sword and cut off someone's ear as a result of it. But today, Peter says, if you suffer unjustly like Jesus did, the perfect example of unjust suffering... He says, I want you to bless them instead of curse them. I want you to return good and not evil. When they hurt you, I want you to love them. When you bless them, you can perhaps pray for their welfare, their protection. Truly pity and love these people because they are showing you evil and they do not know better. Don't patronize them though. Don't act haughty in front of them. Don't pretend that you have the corner of the truth as you bless them. Don't do so with arrogance, but truly love them and care for them. Pray for those who spitefully use you. And notice he says this, knowing that you were called to this. This is at least the second time Peter has said this in the letter. There are other instances in which he suggests this. Take a look at 1 Peter 2.21. Just a chapter earlier, this is what he says, "...for to this you were called." Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And the rest of that text describes Christ willingly facing suffering and death. Twice Peter says, this is your calling. This is your calling, Christian, to suffer unjustly, to patiently endure it, to bless others in the midst of it. I cannot stress enough as Peter is repeating this, I'm repeating this in our in our studies throughout 1 Peter. But the reason why he's using this repetition is because he knows that this is not your natural tendency. I want you to consider is there someone in your life right now who is causing you suffering? Is there someone at work in the home in the church in your family who is causing you pain? Jesus says, bless them. Pray for them. Love and care for them. That's your calling. That's what you are called to do. Your new conduct in Christ. And it's not without reward. Look at the end of verse 9. Peter says this, that you may inherit a blessing. That you may inherit a blessing in blue behind me. Now, what does that mean that you may inherit a blessing? Well, let's go on and take a look at verse 10. Peter is going to carry out what this blessing may look like. Look at verse 10. He says this, for, and he quotes a psalm here, "...for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous." And his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Friends, I submit to you that the blessing that Peter is suggesting at the end of verse 9 is none other than the blessing that we find quoted in the Psalm of David in verse 12. He says, If you would but do this, the Lord will be with you. His eye will be on you. His ear will be especially attentive to your prayers. God will especially be mindful of you, He says. Those who suffer. He will take special note of you. Peter here is quoting Psalm 34, 12-16. to And if you were to read this psalm on your own at home, you would find that in it, David is overcome with affliction. David is overcome with trouble and suffering. And yet he recognizes that in the midst of that trouble and suffering, in the midst of that trial and pain, he says if he would but continue this course, a course in which evil, in which good is returned for evil, in which he refrains from speaking deceit, in which he seeks peace despite the evil and persecution that he is receiving from others. If he would but stay that course, the Lord would bless him. Notice verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days. Here's here's the crux. Not only do you receive blessing from God as a result of suffering unjustly, but David and and By virtue of David, so also Peter is saying, this is the good life. If you desire to love your life, if you desire to have a satisfying and fulfilling life, if you desire to see good days, have the good life experience, David and Peter say, this is the course of action you are to take. See, that's that's foreign to me. That's foreign to us, isn't it? This is the good life, Peter says. If you were, if you are to take this as your life mantra, to consider this as your life conduct in Christ, and if you would but act in this manner, you will see good days. You will have a life that is satisfying. Friends, I submit to you that a satisfying life, you know, we're all looking for a satisfying life. I know I am. I know... Casey and I, we're looking for the best life possible. I'm looking for the greatest things for my son in life. I'm looking for success. I'm looking for, at the end of my days, to look back on my life and say, that was a great life. That was a fulfilling life. You know what the biblical answer is to having that life? Patient endurance through unjust suffering. Patiently enduring. Enduring when we are the recipients of evil. It's not that we're to go out and seek to suffer, but it's every time we do suffer, it's how we respond to it. Every time we do experience pain, it's how we respond to it. And if we we would but rely on the Lord, rely on the Spirit of God within us, and respond in a Christ-like manner, in every instance of suffering, pain, and trouble, Peter and David say, that's going to make your life satisfying you are going to look back at the end of your days and say, I had a good life. The good day for a believer is not one in which he is pampered and sheltered. But the good life is one in which he experiences God's help and blessing because of life's problems and trials. That's the good life. Into verse 12. I want to focus on this particular aspect of blessing. And his ears are open to our prayers, he says. If we would but live this way, the Lord will be more apt to answer our prayers. This word for prayer here in Greek is deasis. It's a secondary word used for prayer. It's not the general Greek word used for prayer. In particular, it means request or intercession. It means what you ask of God. He will be more attentive to what you ask of Him. God is apt to grant the requests of those who live righteously. And we learned, uh, we were studying the topic of prayer last Friday in our melting pot group. We had a great study, I thought, on, on prayer with some of the younger families in our church. And we were recognizing that Scripture is clear. God wants us, commands us, desires us to ask Him for good things. You know, sometimes we get the impression that we don't want to bother God with our prayers. Sometimes we get the impression that, you know, God is, this is such a small matter, Lord, I don't even want to bother you with this request. But if you turn to passages like Luke 11, if you look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, if you look at James 4.2, you find again and again, the Bible says, ask for what you need. Do you need help paying the bills this month? Pray and ask God for physical provision. Are you looking for a better job? Pray and ask God that He would open up a door that you might find a good job. Is your son or daughter behaving poorly and you're having trouble as parents? Ask God to bless your child. Ask God to bring him or her back on the straight and narrow road. I think too often, I know in my own life, I get get the impression that I'm bothering God if it's kind of a menial request. That's not the case. Scriptures say, ask Him. Ask Him for it. He is the giver of good gifts and He desires, as a father desires to bless his children, so also our Heavenly Father takes special pleasure in in blessing you and I when we ask Him for good things. You know, this um, this Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. Uh, as Brent said, uh, I'm going to be uh, down at the um, Historic Town Center Park in San Juan. We gave you the address in your bulletin from 12 to 1 p.m. on Thursday. If you got a lunch break, I encourage you to be there. All sorts of churches, Christian churches in southern Orange County are going to be at that event and they've asked some of the pastors of various churches to pray. And we're going to ask God for good things for our nation. That's what we're setting aside that day for as, as as the United States. We set aside that day that the Lord would bless this nation. Would give it wisdom. Would make it prosperous. I encourage you, If you have time, come and be a part of that special event on Thursday from 12 to 1. It'll be a special time. I'd love to see you there. And then this Sunday, our elders. uh, I've asked uh, Glenn, our chairman, to lead a special prayer time in our church at 9 a.m. in the Fireside Room next Sunday in lieu of our Sunday school hour. Come and pray and ask God to bless this church. Ask Him to guide it, to give us wisdom and discretion as we plan for the future, that we might be a light upon on this hill. I encourage you to participate in these times of prayer. Let's move on. Verse 13, Peter says, And who is He who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now here, Peter is using proverbial language in verse 13. Um, it's not always the case, but it's generally the case, Peter says, that if you do good... You won't experience harm from others. In particular, he's looking he, he's he's relating this to their relationship with the Roman government. You see, in the first century to which Peter is writing, the Christians are experiencing severe persecution from the people around them. At this time it's primarily verbal persecution. They are speaking ill of them. They're calling Christians thieves and murderers. They're accusing them falsely. We learned about that last week. Peter says, if you do good, it is more likely than not that no harm will come to you. In other words, that the state will come to your aid, Peter tells them. That the state is there to punish evil, but to recognize when others do good. And it is generally true, Peter says, that if you become followers of what is good, you will not incur harm. But he says in verse 14 but there there remains a possibility there remains the distinct possibility that you might incur harm for doing good in in uh, this this the words but even if suggests it's less likely to be true than what i've just said in verse 13 but it does happen peter says even if this should take place that you should suffer in the midst of doing righteousness I want you to recognize that you are still blessed. If you should suffer in the face of doing righteousness, I want, I want you to know that you're blessed, Peter says. And Jesus also spoke of this in Matthew five ten to 12 when He talked about how we are blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Vindication, friends, vindication comes to those who suffer unjustly who suffer while doing good. Despite the fact that you may be temporarily tem, receive temporal harm, receive temporal pain and trouble, he says vindication, blessing, will ultimately come to those who continue to be followers of what is good. Now Peter recognizes, as we've been saying throughout this study, that the lifestyle he's advocating for the Christian is not a natural one. It's not a natural human instinct to act in this manner. And we get fearful. We get fearful when we experience trial and suffering. I know I do. When trouble comes my way, I get afraid sometimes. And so he continues on in verse 14. Notice what he says. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And you might wonder why I'm uh, cutting it off in that manner. Really, the, the way the verses are in 1 Peter 3, they're, they're really misapplied to the context, to the flow of the argument. This, what you see at the end of verse 14 and the start of verse 15, is really one thought here. Peter's saying, instead of being fearful of their threats and being troubled by their threats, I want you to sanctify, that is, set apart the Lord, in reference to Jesus, that Jesus Christ is your God. And He is the one who will protect you. Now what's interesting about this statement is that it is a loose quotation from the Old Testament. Going back to Isaiah chapter 8, as a matter of fact, and we were in Isaiah chapter 8 last December. We were going through a special part in Isaiah. I love the story. Let me tell you a little bit about it and give you some of the history behind what Peter is saying here. In Isaiah chapter 8, Verses 12-13 to in particular is the loose quotation that, that Peter is quoting here. We find Judah, the southern tribe of Israel, in about the year 730 B.C. We find that nation being threatened by Israel and Syria, the nations to the north of them. And despite God's offer to help them, despite God's offer to help the nation of Judah, He tells them very plainly, I will protect you and I will wipe out your enemies if you would but trust in Me. Despite that offer of help, Judah and King Ahaz turn away from the Lord and they fear the nations that are surrounding them. Instead of relying on the Lord's clear offer for protection, They fear the nations around them. And so they go off and they align themselves with a pagan nation, Assyria, so that they might be protected militarily. To make a long story short, the nation of Judah, whom God said, I will protect you if you would only trust in Me. That same nation, who shunned God and turned to a pagan nation for protection, was ultimately destroyed. Was ultimately overcome. Was ultimately manhandled, if you will, by the very nation they allied themselves with, Assyria. Assyria came in and decimated Judah. And then Babylon followed later on and decimated the land so that Judah was carried away into captivity. And Peter... Knowing his Old Testament, loosely quoting from Isaiah chapter 8 here in verses 14 and 15, he says you have two options in life. When you are faced with threats and persecution, when you are faced with trouble, you have two options. You can rely on God's offer of protection. You can trust and set apart as your object of dependence the Lord God, as Judah had that offering given to them, that gift, laid in their lap. Or you can be fearful of what is around you and you can resort to earthly means to find your protection. Two options. Either you're going to fear God and show Him reverence and and know that He will protect you, or secondly, you're going to resort to earthly means. You're going to fear men and you're going to rely on earthly means of protection. Peter says, I don't want you to be afraid of their threats. I don't want you to be afraid of those who are surrounding you offering verbal persecution. Instead, I want you to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. I want you to sanctify, that is, make separate. Make separate the Lord Jesus Christ as the God of your life. As the protector of your life. He must be set above all allegiance. Turn everything over to Him and live only to please and glorify Him and do not resort to earthly means to protect yourself. Continuing on, in verse 15. Here's a familiar text for some of you. And always be ready, he says, to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. Now this... Is clearly a familiar verse to some of you, especially how many of you know what the term apologetics means? How much? Raise your hand if you know apologetics, okay? The, the word defense there in yellow is the Greek word apologia, which means a verbal defense. Peter here is suggesting that we are to develop in us a verbal defense of our faith, that we are to be ready and to stand ready. To declare to others why we believe what we believe and how they too can enter into the Christian faith. A verbal defense, Peter says. But friends, keep in mind the reason... I say this very clearly because I think we miss this in our understanding of apologetics. The reason Peter says that we will have opportunities to give a defense for the hope that is in us, is precisely because our gracious lives have so baffled the minds of unbelievers that they are just itching to find out why we live in the manner we do. Did you catch that? The reason, the context, underlying what Peter says in verse 15, that you need to be ready to, be, to give a reason for the hope that is in you, The reason why you are having that opportunity, Peter says, is because your conduct is so holy, so Christ-like, so appealing to the unbelieving world around you that they ask you, why is it that you have hope? Why is it that you have hope in this life? In essence, Peter's understanding of evangelism is a reactive one. He does not so much advocate that Christians should will themselves upon another, declaring their convictions to an unbelieving world, but rather to live in such a godly and gracious manner that others will be compelled to ask you, why do you live this way? Why do you live this way? So often, I, I know this was true of me in my, early on in my faith, so often... We try to argue people into the Christian faith. I, I can't tell you how much I thought I could convince someone to become a Christian. When I was in college and I was taking my Bible classes, you know, my head was filling up and I thought I, I knew it all. I thought, I could go out and I could just, I could lay it out so logically and so clearly that the, that the unbeliever would be forced to accept this is true. That was my understanding of apologetics. That was my understanding of evangelism. I thought, I just needed to, to know it so well that they couldn't, they couldn't deny it. They would be forced to accept this as true. Maybe you know someone who's an atheist. Someone involved in a cult or a false religion. Or someone who's simply a secular human just living in the world, perhaps you find yourselves currently in a debate with them in order to prove the fallacy of their convictions and the truth of yours. Friends, I would submit to you that 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 dialogue that you're having with that individual is probably a, a good dialogue. It could turn out for good. God could use it in a great and mighty way. But let me say very clearly that this is not the normal manner in which someone converts. Rather, Peter tells us time and time and time again that it is our life conduct that opens up a door and causes others to consider the Christian faith. Conduct leads to conversion, not argumentation. Take a look actually behind me. Conduct leading to conversion. Look at what Peter said earlier in our previous studies at the top. In 1 Peter 2:12 he says, "Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works glorify God in the day of visitation." 1 Peter 3:1, "Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won how? By the conduct of their wives" It is conduct that leads to conversion, Peter says. It begins with your conduct. May I submit to you that that part of the problem in your evangelism, if you're experiencing a lack of success in evangelism, may I submit to you that your life isn't very appealing to the person you're speaking to. May I submit to you that they don't look at you and say instinctively, That person has a hope that I cannot explain. My father in law, uh, Bob, has been doing a three week study. He just finished it up today in evangelism. And his first premise was you've got to look at people through the eyes of Jesus Christ. You've got to look at them and love them through the eyes of Jesus Christ. And in your conduct toward them, you must show them that you love and care for them as Christ does. Imagine what might happen, friends. Imagine what might happen if you were to bake some cookies and take them over to a neighbor's home just on a whim. Give them a gift. Say, "Just, just wanted you to know I cared for you and went back home. Imagine what would happen if you bought lunch for your co-worker. Imagine what would happen if you bought lunch for your boss. Imagine what would happen if you offered to babysit your neighbor's children so that they could go out on a date night of their own. Friends, these are just small and, and petty examples, but I tell you, they open doors. It's the little things like this that will cause your neighbor, or your coworker, or your boss, or your family member, to say, "Why? Why are you doing this? Why do you act this way? What is this hope that you have in life? It will open up a door, leading, very possibly." To their conversion to Christ. Returning to the end of verse 15, he says, But do this with meekness and with fear. When you speak about your faith in Christ, make sure your attitude is one of meekness and fear. One theologian put it, We are not, excuse me, we are witnesses, not prosecuting attorneys. I think that's very true. We are to be witnesses of Christ, not prosecuting attorneys. Evangelism methods, friends, that that focus on aggression is not what God desires. I'm I'm less than enthused when I see uh, someone who is very well a believer standing up in the middle of a secular place and holding up a sign that says, Repent or else you're going to hell. And the reason why I'm not enthused by that method of evangelism is because no one responds to that. Is it true on his sign? Of course it's true. But you know what? Until that person who is attempting attempting to demonstrate the truth of, of God to, to the unbelieving world, until that person recognizes that it, that it is his love for them that will lead them unto conversion, that it is his conduct, his gracious and loving attitude that will lead someone to conversion, until that person recognizes that, they're going to see very little fruit in their ministry. I submit to you that we do not argue people into the faith. We love people into the faith. There is a time for argument, but usually, most often, it is in the context of love. It is in the context of loving them. Having a good conscience. Move on to verse 16. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Again, this reminds us of 1 Peter 2.12 where he talked about having your conduct so honorable among the Gentiles that they, when they see your good works, they'll glorify God. That they'll be ashamed of their ways. Peter sums it up here. He says, regardless of what they're saying against you, let your lifestyle show the love of Christ. That they might be ashamed. That they might be ashamed of the way in which they treat you. Verse 17, For it is better, It is better, Peter says, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If, friends, in God's omniscience, in God's almighty plan, if in His plan there is suffering and trouble, persecution and pain, if He is to use this for His ends, and we are to experience it and to rely on Him in the midst of it, Peter says this is commendable. This is a blessed life. If it is the will of God that this happen, then it is a good thing. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Generally speaking, people do not oppose us when we do good. But even if they do, Peter says, it is better to suffer for righteousness' sake than to compromise our testimony. And again, let me say very clearly, I don't mean to suggest today, I don't mean to suggest that we're to go out and seek suffering. That's not the case. This is a reactive element to the Christian life. It is when we suffer, how we respond, is what Peter is looking for us to consider. How can we apply this message today? I have three things. Three very obvious and elementary things, but I think that will be helpful for for our lives today. Application first. Christian, one of your life callings is to bless those who bring you grief, trouble, and suffering. And I ask you very plainly, will you bless them? Will you bless them? I want you to really truly consider someone in your life who you can do this for today. And I would love to hear about it. I'd love to hear about what it it looks like after you begin to show them love and care despite their hatred or their scorn of you. Will you bless them? uh, 2. Effective evangelism begins with Christ-like conduct. People are rarely argued into the faith, but often loved into the faith. 3. God blesses us when we purpose to repay evil with good. Friends, this is the good life. If you want a satisfying life, if you want to see good days... Peter says, this is the way in which you should live. And you will look back one day and you will be satisfied. You will look back and you will say, God, thank you for this good life. A life that even in the midst of suffering, Father, you gave me help to love and to bless those who cursed me. Friends, suffering is often the unexpected key to a satisfying life. I urge you to respond well in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we recognize that Your Son, Jesus Christ, suffered on our behalf. Father, we lift up the name of Jesus Christ. We exalt Him because He patiently endured the cross. Something that was totally unmerited, Father. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And yet He died in our stead, suffering unjustly that good might happen, that sin might be done away with, that we might be given opportunity to be reconciled to God forever by faith in Jesus Christ. Father, now we have a new life code. We as Christians, Lord, have been called to this life, the life that Jesus lived. Father, I pray that if any in this room today are experiencing pain, suffering, trouble, persecution. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit within them would remind them how You would like them to react. To react in grace and love. Not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but repaying evil with good. Father, we pray that this might lead to the conversion of many that we know. For we know, Father, in Your Word, that it is conduct that often leads others into the Christian faith. Father, may our conduct be so Christ-like, be so God-honoring, that others will be itching to ask us, what is the hope within You? May we be ready, Father, when the time comes to answer that question. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.